0: It's amazing, right? God does the miraculous. So the Bible, uh, it's, um, it's the most translated book of all time. It's translated into over 2,500 different languages. Uh, it's one of the most impactful books as well. It's, uh, it's really the most influential book of all time. Not not just in terms of culture and civilization, but into individual people's lives. It is absolutely life-changing and life-transforming. The plan for uh, this series that we're in is Through the Bible in Seven Weeks, is to take all of us through all 66 books of the Bible in seven weeks and give you a 30,000-foot view of, uh, of what's in each of the books so that it would wet your appetite a little bit and begin to initialize something in your life uh, that would cause that would stir something up in you to uh, get in the word for yourself to begin to read it on your own and and to discover what is the big deal about this amazing book and so. Uh, we've been in. This will now be week number five as we uh, go into it. If you're just visiting with us or joining us, uh, you've come at a good time because uh, we are now moving from uh, the Old Testament into the New Testament. So we've just completed the the first thirty nine books of the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, and today we're going to start the New Testament. Uh, the Bible, as I said, is made up of 66 books. It's written by more than 40 authors over a span of hundreds of years. It's divided into these two halves: the Old Testament, the New Testament. You could refer to them as before Jesus and after Jesus, or during and after Jesus. That—that's uh, kind of uh, the separation. Uh, we are now going into the during uh, Jesus portion of the Bible. And we're going to look at four biographical accounts that are known as the Gospels. Uh, It's the life of Jesus, a life that didn't seem destined for greatness, if we're being honest. Uh, He was born in this small, obscure village to a peasant woman. Uh, He never visited a large city in his life. In fact, he never traveled more than 200 miles from from his uh, birthplace, uh, he just wasn't well-traveled. He, he never wrote a book. He never ran for office or held an office. He, he was only 33 years old when public opinion started to turn on him, and even his friends started to turn on him. They started to abandon him, and uh, he was then turned over uh, at the age of 33. He was turned over to his enemies. He was nailed to a wooden cross, between two criminals, and while he was dying, the Roman soldiers were gambling for, their, for his clothes, the only possession that he had on this earth. And yet today, he is arguably the central figure of the entire human race. His life even marks our concept of time. We, have, uh, we, we would call this 80, 2018 Right? Latin for Anna Domini, the, the year of our Lord, 2018. Anything before that is called BC, before Christ. But do we really know who he is? Right? From his, his birthplace to his temptation, his message to his mission, from, from the miracles that he performed to his death and resurrection, we probably don't know as much about him as we think we do. And that's mostly because for many of us, we haven't taken the time to actually read the entirety of what is known as the Gospels. So I want us to take a look at a few things that aren't on record Uh, what we think we know about Jesus that's often colored by tradition, by custom, or political correctness. And and so I want us to just take a look at a few of the kind of uh, things that are out there that people think that actually aren't recorded anywhere and aren't true. Um, For example, the idea that Jesus was white. He wasn't, in case you didn't know. Uh, I know that growing up in the church, you saw the little picture of Jesus, and and he looked white in the picture, but you you know that wasn't a real picture of Jesus, right? Yeah, he he wasn't white. His skin actually would have had an olive darkness to it because he was a Mediterranean Jew. Uh, Even to this day, you would find people with that complexion uh, in that region, which also meant, by the way, because he was a Mediterranean Jew, that he didn't speak English, not even King James English. (laughs) He would have, as a a schoolboy, been versed in Hebrew and probably Greek, but his native tongue was Aramaic, right? That's the language that he spoke. And being a Mediterranean Jew... And I know this is a little bit of a stereotype, but I'm just making the observation also meant that he wasn't overly tall. All right? So he was probably under six feet. And not only was he not tall, but according to the ancient prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah that we all believe applies to Jesus, he wasn't physically impressive at all. Uh, in, his, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, it says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that, would, that we should desire him. So this idea that Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome really only got the dark part right, right? <laughs> the, the, there are these misconceptions floating around about Jesus, some based on tradition, but mostly based on ignorance. Uh, and, but what we do have are these four independent eyewitness accounts recorded in the Bible that clear some of this stuff up for us about who Jesus is. So let's jump in, uh, beginning with the answer to the question, uh, what do we mean when we talk about these books or these biographies being the Gospels? Well, the word Gospel itself is built off of the old Anglo-Saxon word, God's spell, which means good news. And that's what lies at the heart of the person and work of Jesus, the coming, the telling, the embodiment of the good news of God for human beings. That's what we read in these four books. At the heart of that good news is that through Jesus, we can experience forgiveness of sins. And not only can we experience forgiveness of sins, but we can enter into an authentic, personal life-changing relationship with the living God and everybody whether you know it or not that is good news there are four of these gospels or these accounts of the life of teach uh, and the teaching of Jesus Uh, Matthew Mark Luke and anybody John oh very very good class well done so who were these guys? Who, who, who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, Matthew was one of the original followers or, or, or disciples of Jesus, and he was later appointed as an apostle. That was a very special designation that was made by Jesus himself. In other words, that, that set Matthew apart for a ministry of teaching and leadership in, in his life that was directly sanctioned by Jesus. Matthew was also a tax collector right before becoming a follower of Jesus which means his background is a little sketchy right he was he would have been morally a mess he he just would have in his time because of the the uh, the stereotype of tax collectors he would have been crooked and corrupt Mark was a follower of Jesus who was also a protege of two other men that will be mentioned as we get into the coming weeks of, of some books. Uh, two guys uh, by the name of Paul and Barnabas, and then later on, the Apostle Peter. Mark was the youngest of the four writers, and it's widely held that Mark's gospel is actually, uh, or essentially, Peter's gospel because he was his primary source. Uh, Luke was a physician by training, a gifted historian. He was a close friend of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's also, he, he's also the only one of the four writers who wasn't Jewish. Uh, Luke was one of the first Gentile converts. Which brings us to John. John, like Matthew, was an apostle. Uh, John had a brother named James who also was a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Both of them were fishermen. These guys were blue-collar, with their hands type of guys. Uh, John is known as the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, primarily because of their close friendship and the fact that uh, historians uh, conclude that there's a good chance he was Jesus' cousin. We don't know that for sure, but there are some indications that his mother was a sister of Mary. If that's true, and I put an if in front of that, uh, they would have known each other their entire lives, and it was John who Jesus asked, to watch over his mother Mary while he was taking his last breaths on the cross. So why are there four separate accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus? Well, the first reason, and this is in your notes, is because of the importance and the centrality of the life of Jesus. If anyone deserves four eyewitness accounts, it's Jesus. The second reason is because the life of Jesus was so rich and so diverse and so multifaceted that it called for the four approaches of four different writers. Think of it this way, that if if you were getting a portrait done and you had four different artists painting your portrait, it would give everyone that saw those paintings a better glimpse into who you are. Uh, The same could be said of these four Gospels, that uh, we get the fullest possible reflection of the life of Jesus. Finally, uh, number four, there are four for validation. Rather than just taking Matthew's word for what happened, for what Jesus said and what he did, we have actually four independent biographical accounts. So what do they say? What do we find in the four accounts of Jesus' life and testimony? Well, all four Gospels tell the story of a Jewish man named Jesus who came from the ancestral line of King David. He was miraculously conceived by a virgin named Mary through the Holy Spirit who was born in Bethlehem, followed uh, followed by a short term in Egypt, and then raised in a city called Nazareth. He was mirac- uh, Jesus spent his first 30 years in relative obscurity. He, we don't know a lot of the life of Jesus. I personally would like to know his teenage years, having gone through that and puberty and all of that, but we don't know, right? It's relative obscurity. Uh, but most indicate, most historians indicate that Joseph, Mary's husband, would have died when Jesus was young, which explains Jesus... Staying to care for his mother Mary until he was 30, as would be his obligation until other brothers care for her as a widow. He had a cousin named John. Everybody's got a crazy cousin, right? Crazy cousin, crazy uncle. Jesus, no different. He's got a crazy cousin named John the Baptist. This guy ate locusts, he drank honey, or wild. Animal clothes, he was just crazy. But he was also prophet, he was also a prophet, he would prophesy, and he's actually the forerunner for Jesus. He was a prophet that proclaimed that the Messiah was coming and that everybody should get ready. And so Jesus went to John the Baptist. The reason why he's called John the Baptist is because he baptized people. And so Jesus went to get baptized, right? It's just pretty obvious. Uh, He went to get baptized, and when he shows up to get baptized, John says about Jesus, this is who I've been prophesying about. This is the Messiah. He has come. So Jesus was baptized by John, went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, testing temptation by Satan himself, and he was doing all of this in the preparation of the public ministry that he was about to perform. Uh, That public ministry began in a place, in in a city called Galilee, where he was calling others to follow him, setting apart 12 of these followers for this intense, intimate mentoring and discipleship that would take place. In essence, he's saying to these 12, I want you to come and do life with me. I want to pour into your life for the next three years so that when I leave, you can carry on the work of the ministry. Just a little insight into how I view people, just in general, uh, especially people that I disciple, is I always just think uh, if Jesus got them for three years, uh, then that's kind of how I should view it, that I should view people uh, that we have them for three years, and anything beyond three years is like icing on the cake. Now, if your three years is up and you've been here, don't leave, I'm just saying like, there, there was this sense of intensity. Oftentimes, without that intensity we, or, or that intentionality, we just kind of go through life. But it's like, no, we have limited time. We have limited ability to actually invest and in speak into people's lives. So, uh, we, we kind of think in those terms a little bit around here. So, uh, Jesus taught many things that are recorded in the four uh, gospels, the four biographies, including his famous Sermon on the Mount. He also taught informally through like parables and stories. He used analogies and examples. His his primary message, though, was that the kingdom of God had arrived, that people should turn from their sins and put their trust in God. That was his message. He made it very clear that he was the Messiah, that he was God himself in human form who came to this earth to show the way. The four Gospels go on and tell us how Jesus kept telling his followers that he would, in the end, lay down his life for their sins, for the sins of the world. And that whoever would believe in him and accept his death on their behalf for the forgiveness of sins would have eternal life. He had many memorable encounters throughout the Gospels with Guys like Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, a religious leader named Nicodemus, a rich young ruler, and then this large, colorful assortment of these people who like prostitutes and adulterers and thieves and murderers. And throughout his three-year public ministry, Jesus performed miracles. He performed miracles like changing water into wine, which was his first miracle. Uh, he healed the blind the lame, the sick. He healed a woman who had a blood sickness that was, that was deemed to be this, this terminal illness in her life. He calmed storms. He walked on water. He fed large multitudes with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus even raised the dead in his friend Lazarus his fame continued to grow, building to the time that he came to Jerusalem, the place where the temple was built. And we, if you've been around church for very long, on Palm Sunday, you remember the picture of Jesus entering into the city with praises of Hosanna, with uh, palm branches being uh, waved towards him as a, sign, as a sign of reverence and respect. Uh, but soon the... Cheers of praise changed to crucify him and after the Last Supper with his disciples and after a night in prayer in a garden called Gethsemane, he was arrested by the Jewish leaders. He was beaten. He was turned over to the Roman authorities. He was tried and crucified, all because they perceived him to be a massive threat to the established order. On the third day, he rose from the dead Many don't understand the timeline of the gospels but what you may not know is that he after he rose from the dead he presented himself to his followers on numerous occasions over the over the course of a 40 day period and then he returned to heaven but not before promising that he would a second time come before the end of time now there's obviously much much more But that's the essential flow of the story of Jesus' life as presented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they do it with this remarkable consistency and unity. They they come at it from different angles. They, They have this different perspective and different approach, just as you would expect four eyewitnesses to have. right? But given the record of life... And uh, the, given the record of life of Jesus, what they do is they give it depth and color, where one leaves something out, the other fills it in. But what's interesting, especially in Matthew, Mark and Luke, is it's incomplete, unified and, and consistency. So let's jump in into what makes each of these four unique. Because while all four of them tell the same story, there are some differences in what part of the story they tell. So, let's walk through, starting in Matthew. As I said, Matthew was one of the twelve disciples, and therefore, an eyewitness. Matthew records more of Jesus' teaching than any of the other writers. For example, Matthew's record uh, Gives all of the Sermon on the Mount, the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wasn't simply uh, written by a Jew, it was written for the Jews. His goal was to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Messiah that they had had prophesied, that it's uh, that's its distinguishing mark, really, that the gospel uh, is for the Jews. Matthew wanted to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus was in the line of David, which was the only way that they could even accept him as the Messiah. And it's why he starts his his book with the genealogy, you know, the part that we all skip when we start reading the book of Matthew. right? The genealogy with Abraham, the founder of the Jewish race. And throughout the gospel, Matthew is wanting to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah mostly by showing them the fulfilled prophecies of the prophets of old. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. There's 16 chapters in length. Mark was a young guy, and it's, as you read it, it's written like it's from a young guy. It's fast-paced, it's energetic, it's electric, almost like you would, uh, almost like you would write the action for a comic book. That's what Mark is. Right, It begins on a run and it ends with this screeching halt, so much so that some historians wondered if maybe the, the ending was somehow destroyed or lost. But when you read Mark, it's like whizzing through the life of Jesus. It's like the cliff notes of Jesus. Uh, he only hits on these action scenes that take place. There's nothing about the virgin birth. There's nothing about the wise men coming to visit. There's nothing about Jesus as a boy in the temple. There's, there's no Sermon on the Mount, right? Just the action scenes. So it shouldn't surprise us that Mark records more miracles than any of the other Gospels. Even the one and only miracle that is recorded in all four of the books and that is, just if you like trivia or you want to sound really smart to your friends, is uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Many of us would be familiar of that miracle where Jesus uh, is speaking to a crowd of people. They have no food for him. A boy brings some loaves and some fish, and he multiplies that and feeds all. Uh, really, it would have been more than 5,000. It would have been 5,000 men, so you're probably talking upwards of ten to 15,000. Uh, but Mark's gospel is the only one that records that there was not just one, but two feedings of the multitudes. Uh, that f- the first feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and the second is a feeding of 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. He wasn't trying to write a biography. He really was just trying to write a gospel, the essence of the good news, In fact, of the 12 times the word gospel is used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eight of them happen to be in Mark. As mentioned, Mark was Peter's spiritual son in the faith who wrote down what Peter said about who Jesus was, what he did, where he went, and what happened. And so when you're reading Mark's gospel, you're essentially reading Peter's account, an eyewitness account written down and edited by Mark. Mark records how stunned people were. At what Jesus said and did. In fact, one of the most common used words in the Gospel of Mark is the word amazed. Luke, now on to Luke. Luke was a doctor, he's a co worker with the Apostle Paul. Because there were some false stories that were circulating, Luke decided to do some interviews with people who were eyewitnesses. Uh, and and follow Jesus closely, and so what he did is he collected all of those interviews into a single account recording details that aren't mentioned anywhere else. Luke's gospel is the most thorough, it's the most historical, and it's the most academic. Uh, And the purpose isn't just historical and academia, of course, but to strengthen the faith of believers so that they could trust the written word of God. They could trust the record of Jesus' life and teaching, and they could have confidence in that record. There's also this sense that Luke, in his writing, is writing towards unbelievers, the skeptics, uh, the Gentiles who, like him, didn't even have a Jewish background. Luke was our guy, right? For most of us, were are Gentiles, right? And so Luke's our guy. He's writing to us. In fact, this is how he begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, sounds so smart, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that That you were taught. We don't really know who Theophilus was, but more than likely he was the patron who supported the research project and the writing of the gospel. This is also why we get the most detail surrounding the birth of Jesus. All of your Christmas verses that you read during the Christmas season, most of them come from the book of Luke. But Luke isn't just interested in getting the history right. He's interested in getting Jesus' mission right. In Luke, what you see is this focus on telling the parts of Jesus' life and teaching that's related to this insatiable desire to go after the lost, the people who are far from God. Luke reveals, maybe more than any of the others, Jesus being absolutely driven on a mission to reach those who are far from him. And then there's John. John. Uh, John is the most unique among the four. So much so that in in Bible college, we study this in kind of this separate form. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called uh, what are called the synoptic gospels, right? And John is in a whole other category. The reason the term synoptic is because it's actually the word synoptic means from a similar viewpoint. Uh, or in or seen in a similar way. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seen in a similar viewpoint or in a similar way. They tell a lot of the same stories, often in the same order, and often with the same wording or vocabulary. Uh, for example, 91% of what you find in Mark's gospel is found in Matthew's, right? So there's obviously this overlap that's taking place, which makes sense, because these guys are following Jesus around, they're reading, uh, or they're having the same accounts, they're having the same experiences, they're witnessing the same miracles, and so all of this would seem very, very similar. But John is a little different. Not that he wasn't an eyewitness, he was, but he tells stories, John tells stories that the others didn't tell, and he gets into conversations that, that they didn't record. He just edited things a little bit differently. He left some stuff out that they put in. He put some stuff in there that they left out. So you have the synoptics telling of his miracles and his parables and these large-scale teachings. But John focuses on his deeper discussions, including these intimate conversations that he has. You could say that the synoptics are Jesus in action and John is Jesus in conversation. One reason for this is because John lived to be older than any of the other writers of the Gospels, and he wrote his last, right? So it's likely that he would have been familiar with their writings and wanted to supplement theirs with additional content. Uh, He would want to address the miracles that they didn't talk about, the conversations that they didn't talk about. And so Jesus was close to him. Jesus was close to John. He saw things. He had conversations with Jesus that, uh, that some of the other disciples didn't have. And John wrote from this deeply theological and philosophical viewpoint. Whereas Matthew began with a genealogy, John began in a very different way. So let me give you how Matthew starts out, and then we'll take a look at how John starts out. Matthew starts out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on to list that genealogy, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Ruth and David, all the way down to Mary and Joseph, again laying a foundation for his Jewish audience. Because, and that's all I know, because I skip past it too when I'm reading it, but, but it actually has some importance to it, right? Because it's it's this expression, it's it's telling the Jewish people where the Messiah came from. Uh. We read earlier how Luke starts off pretty straightforward as well, but then there's John, and here's how John starts it in John chapter 1, uh, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. In verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John just goes right deep, right? I mean, we, you start reading that and you're, you're like, wait a minute, in Him was life and life was the light of men and I'm lost. You know, I'm lost. I don't even know what you're saying. And, and, and what he's actually doing here is he's he's tipping his hat a little bit to this Greek thinking, this this Greek a culture or philosophy that would say that the originating force or the originating power of the universe was the logos the word and john begins by saying yes you're right in the beginning was the word and the word was god and not only that, this word became flesh in the person of Jesus. But, but while John tips his hat to kind of this Greek idea, his real intent is, is pretty simple. He even tells us what it is in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miracles, signs in the. Uh, let, me ref, let me just start over. Remember what I said about 3 a.m., all of that. Okay, just, just check and make sure you guys remember. Uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, talking about his book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wanted to communicate the person of Jesus, and he wanted people to believe in him as that person. That there was God himself in human form come to call all of the world back to himself. In fact, the word believe is used 98 different times in the book of John. And John is absolutely focused on this. He's not writing a a classic biography. In fact, the closest to his book would be Luke's book. But he's writing this evangelistic message to the world. He wants to present Jesus as this, this unfil- as unfiltered as possible so that anyone who would read it would have to deal with the weight of Jesus' life and his teaching. See, what John wanted to do is paint you and I into a corner and make us decide. He wanted us to decide on who this Jesus is. I'll give you a taste of that through this uh, pivotal interaction that, that John records that Jesus has with a group of religious leaders. Uh, it's from John chapter uh, 8, verse 48 through 59. If you want to jot that down, you can go back and read it. But, so the Jews said to Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan or demon-possessed? You know, you're going to feel pretty bad if you're a Samaritan, because the only alternative is you're either a Samaritan or you're demon-possessed. <laughs> I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I tell you the truth, if a man keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replies Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Their response, they're like just fuming. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up some stones to stone him, to kill him. So let's unpack that interaction just a little bit, because this is really, really significant for us today. Who did Jesus say he was? So... That wasn't a rhetorical question, that was, uh, that was actually a question, but I'll make it rhetorical for your sake. So, uh, who did Jesus say he was? He said, I am. Right? He said, I am. Now, that's either re- really bad grammar, or he's saying something really significant here, and re- what he's saying is really significant. So let me just give you the background of, of what that means. It's found in one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of Moses before the burning bush. God himself was speaking to Moses. He's telling him to go to the the highest authority, to the to the largest or the biggest power in the land, and demand that he release all of the slaves out of Egypt. Moses understandably wanted to be able to have a little bit of credibility. Right, so he asked God to give him his name. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what was your name again? You know, it's like hey, the very like. Give me the very name of God, so that Moses could say to, to Pharaoh, he could tell him exactly who had sent him. And here's the answer that God gave to Moses. God said to Moses, "I am who I am. This is what you are to say. I am has sent me to you." from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. That phrase, I am, is considered to be the most holy word in existence because it is the very name of God. It was considered so holy that the Jews wouldn't even write it out completely. They would only write the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Uh, the closest we can uh, make out in light of, of the missing vowels is that it's pronounced Yahweh. They used to think it was pronounced Yehovah, Jehovah, but now we know it's pronounced Yahweh. God said, my name is Yahweh. My name is, I am. Now look back at what Jesus said when he asked, when asked about his identity. <laughs> I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And it's why they picked up stones. Jesus claimed the very name of God for himself. He said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'm God. And they're reaching down as he's saying I am multiple times. They understood this completely. They lived their whole life with the knowledge of who I am is. And because this was nothing less than blasphemy, They were ready to kill him because this mere man was claiming to be God himself. But this mere man made that claim repeatedly throughout his life. And John records them. Here's just a few of them from John chapter 10, verse 36. I am the Son of God. In John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, has seen I am. John wanted there to be no doubt that in Jesus, we have a person who walked this earth and claimed to be God. It's as if John wanted to force the issue of where we stand with Jesus, because claiming to be God in human form only leaves you four options. Ready? These are in your notes. Here's your four options that if we, if, we, if we believe and we stand with Jesus because he's claiming to be God in human form, here's our options. The first option is this. You can conclude that Jesus was crazy, that he was a complete lunatic that maybe he did think he was God, right? We hear that statement, a God complex, like maybe he did think he was God, but he was severely sick psychologically, right? Even though nothing in any of the historical records of the life of Jesus it exhibits any sort of sign of the classical manifestations of mental illness, but, but maybe that, that, that would be a conclusion that you would have to come to. A second choice is to say uh, that he's just a liar, The problem with that is uh, you're saying that the man whose teaching has set the standard for integrity and honesty throughout the civilized world uh, was a habitual, premeditated, pathological liar. And even more important to remember in this uh, sort of conclusion is that Jesus was arrested, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was tortured, all prior to his execution for claiming he was God. But on the front end of before he was tortured, he was offered a full pardon by the Roman governor, Pilate, if he would just simply deny his claim to be God. Now, think about that for a second. If a con man could stop a nail being driven into the flesh of his wrist just by fessing up I'm going to go out on a limb and say he does it. Right? That the people who are playing a game for their personal gain, they change that game when all of a sudden they're, the, the flesh is being ripped from your frame. And yet somehow Jesus never recanted. He endured all of the pain. The third option is to say that Jesus was just a good man. Maybe even a a prophet from God. Somebody is not happy. (laughs) It's me. I probably woke her up. I'm sorry. I wake babies up with my voice. A third option is to say that Jesus was just a good man. Maybe even a prophet from God, but that's all. But that's all. And, And this is where a lot of people today are. Because they have a hard time saying that Jesus was crazy. They have a hard time saying that Jesus was a liar. But they're more comfortable saying that he was a good man and not God. That, that maybe he was even a holy man, but not God. There's a problem with that one too, and, uh, and I would explain it to you in my words, except for they're not nearly as Uh, wise or smart as a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a, a brilliant professor who served at both Cambridge and Oxford. And here's what he wrote about this option. I just find this so important for us to remember because it really drives home this idea. This is what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone, and if I could just speak that to you today, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. I was trying to figure out why he used poached egg, right? Like, I mean, he could have come up with anything. But essentially, he's saying that if you say that, you're crazy. You must make your choice. And that's what I would say to all of us this morning. We must make our choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can say that Jesus was a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher or philosopher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So as C.S. Lewis eloquently says, the fourth option is to fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Those are your options. Those are your choices. And Honestly, as a pastor, as someone who is a teacher of the word, as someone who loves God, I hope that you'll pick the latter. I pray that you'll pick the latter. That Jesus is who he says he is. That God is who he says he is. See, we get hung up on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we talked about this early on a few weeks ago about that we have one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus being God the Son in human form, sent to this earth to be the ultimate and final sacrifice for you and me, for our sin. And then when he rose from the grave, ascends up into heaven he says to the disciples, I now leave with you a helper in the Holy Spirit. We have the helper that is the Holy Spirit available to us. I want us to pray. I'm going to come back and I want to read a passage of scripture from John to you. But I'm going to pray because I haven't given people the opportunity necessarily in this sermon series to respond to the call to enter into a relationship with Jesus. But there's no way I can go through the Gospels. No way can I talk about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. No way can I give as best of an argument and statement for Jesus being God and coming to this earth as a sacrifice for us. There's, there's no way that I can then not give you the opportunity if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus to do that today. So I'm going to ask that you bow your heads. I'm going to pray with you.